All right. You can turn in your Bibles to the book of Revelation this morning. Revelation chapter 19. Continuing our look and our verse-by-verse study of this wonderful book of the Bible. And we have made it to the climactic event of the book and really the climactic event of history. And that is the coming again of Jesus Christ to the earth to establish His kingdom here on this earth. Our scripture reading this morning was Isaiah chapter 11 and gave some pretty detailed descriptions of this kingdom time uh, where animals that would normally be more interested in eating one another are lying down together and children are leading them and mothers uh, are allowing their children to play with snakes, vipers, and these kinds of things. I, I've known a lot of mothers in my day, and I don't, can't think of a single one who would be comfortable allowing uh, the child to play with the vipers and cobras and these kinds of things. It's horrifying to even think about. Uh, which is, all of that to say is a lot of evidence that we are not living in this kingdom period today, which is uh, one of the big mistakes that uh, people make in Christendom is thinking that, oh, since Jesus has come and he died for our sins, we're in the kingdom and we're kingdom people and we're doing kingdom work and all of this kind of talk, which is contrary to really what we find in the scriptures in its description of the kingdom. Yes, we are kingdom ambassadors. We are representatives of the kingdom, but that, just that phraseology that Paul uses means we're not in the kingdom now. An ambassador doesn't live in the country that he's from. He lives in a foreign country, and he represents the principles of his own country to the one in which he is living, unless he's a traitor. And uh, so that ought to get our attention this morning. We are living in enemy territory, uh, and we are, however, God's representatives in this place. And so that ought to shape our thinking and our actions and our future that we have with God in partaking in his coming again to this earth ought to motivate us to be faithful today. And that's what we'll talk about this morning as we come to a description of the armies of heaven. Did you know that you're going to be part of an army uh, uh, at some point in the future as a believer in Christ? According to God's word, we are. We are going to be there with him. And we find ourselves here in this uh, main section of the book, inching our way to (laughs) verse 21 of Revelation 19, where the tribulation period and the second coming will come to a conclusion and we'll be able to highlight the next section finally uh, here on our outline. Book of Revelation, if you'll remember, written by the Apostle John in about 95 uh, AD 95, 96, somewhere in that time frame. And it, it is a book that reveals Jesus Christ Uh, It doesn't reveal, well, it gives us information about the Antichrist, about the tribulation period, about the mark of the beast, about one world government, and all of these things that we 
Uh, and we at Flushing Bible Church spend time uh, Sunday school talking about how the world is going towards some of these things. But the fact of the matter is that the book of Revelation is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is a book that is telling us primarily the events that will lead up to his second coming and the establishment of the kingdom on the earth. The kingdom is a literal event, a literal uh, thing, if you will, that will take place with Jesus Christ literally ruling and reigning from Jerusalem over this earth. What leads up to that is a topic of much discussion. And uh, it can be, that's fine. Uh, it doesn't, there doesn't need to be doubt about the events that will lead up to him coming again because they're very clearly revealed in chapters 6 through 19 of the book of Revelation. This book can easily be separated or outlined, if you will, into three main parts from Revelation 1.19. Uh, John received his, his marching orders uh, from the Lord himself. Revelation 1.19, he told him how to, how to outline this book. He said, therefore, write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after these things. The things which you have seen was chapter 1. A revelation or a picture, a vision of the risen Christ, the one who is delivering this message, the, where, we, where this book receives its authority from, the risen Christ himself. So we get a description of his uh, incredible aura, his very presence, to lend credence to the book. The things which are, chapters 2 and 3, if you'll remember, the messages to the churches, literal messages lit, written to literal church bodies, just like uh, Flushing Bible Church. They just had different names, uh, names of cities that existed then that had churches like Ephesus, Thyatira, Smyrna, these kinds of things. That, and God had, Jesus Christ himself had specific messages for these individual churches so that they could be better representatives of him in this world. And so they're, they're literal letters written to these churches that have a secondary application to us also, of course, because we're not perfect. Uh, and so we need correction in a lot of areas in our lives. Not just the message to the church at Laodicea, but all of them apply to us at various times as individuals. And as, uh, and as a church, the, those messages could apply to us as a, as a church body. That's the things which are. John was alive during the church age. Uh, and we are still alive during the church age or the dispensation of the church, if you will. And next, according to Revelation 1.19, he was to write the things which will take place after these things. That's chapter 4 really forward to the end of the book that we saw a scene in heaven, the, uh, the presentation of Christ as the risen lamb. John is caught up to heaven and sees these things. Uh, there's the presentation of Christ as a, as a lamb who was slain, who's now risen again. He is the one who has authority to open up this scroll that kicks off the tribulation 
period. The tribulation uh, begins with the first seal and ends with the seventh bowl and Christ coming again to the earth. Future time period. We're not uh, just because there was a big earthquake a couple weeks ago. doesn't mean we're in the tribulation. Uh, we know that we're not in the tribulation the same way that Paul described in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 because the Antichrist isn't here. And we are still here. Oh, by the way, there's another good piece of evidence that we're not in the tribulation because we're still here. So we shouldn't be shaken by current events and these kinds of things. Instead, we should be motivated to live for him because that day when we see current events that match things in the scriptures, that ought to get our attention and say, oh, we're getting closer and closer every single day to the time when Christ will come again for us in the rapture of the church to take us back to the Father's house. Uh, and then this tribulation period will begin that we've been spending all these weeks describing in chapters 6 through 19. And then the kingdom comes. Christ comes to the earth in Revelation 19. And then the kingdom is here. That's why we're pre-millennialists because we believe the scriptures very clearly present Jesus as coming again before the kingdom period. A literal 1,000 year kingdom, then the great white throne judgment, and then the new heavens and the new earth or the eternal state described in Revelation 21 and 22. Last time in our study, we're kind of uh, going back and forth among portions of this uh, passage of Scripture because, as I mentioned, this, this is it. This is what the book is about. Jesus Christ coming again, like we saw in uh, Revelation 1.8 that tells us what the book uh, is about. Or Revelation 1.7, Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, and even those who pierced Him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over Him. So it is to be. Amen. That, this is what the book is about. So we're spending uh, some weeks looking at these things. And so uh, last time we saw the faithful and true one, the one who is uh, coming again. Jesus Christ himself described as faithful and true. It's kind of his name. That's what he was called because that's what he is. He is faithful and he is true. We saw that word behold. It's a command. This is something we need to be paying attention to. Uh, Jesus Christ is known by what he is. Again, faithful and true. He has eyes that are all seeing. He has these many crowns, uh, which are representative of the fact of his sovereignty. Uh, he, is, he is the all-knowing, all-seeing, all-powerful uh, sovereign of the universe. And he is coming again to establish his kingdom on the earth. We saw that he was, uh, that he, he had a robe dipped in blood, probably a reference to Isaiah 63, that is a description of him treading the winepress of God's wrath on this earth. Uh, some will say that, oh, he's got the robe dipped in blood because he died for the sins of the world, but that doesn't match with other. Uh, description, Isaiah 63 being one in particular that describes him uh, 
instilling this God's wrath upon the earth for the sin and the sinful people who are here reaping what they have sowed, essentially, and that is judgment. And that is what this passage, this passage is about. Revelation 19.11, in righteousness he judges and wages war. War is a, is a bloody business. And Jesus Christ is the one who will do it alone as we have seen and uh, we'll see moving forward. So what we, uh, our conclusion that we came to in the first one of this kind of mini-series within the book is that this passage, Revelation 19, 11 through 19 or down to 21, verse 21, is not describing the rapture of the church. These are two very, very, very different events. The rapture is something that happens in the air. Christ comes again in the air, catches us up to meet him, and takes us back to the Father's house. That that cannot be what is being described here at all. The second coming is on the earth. Jesus Christ coming and setting foot on the earth to establish his kingdom. The rapture is a delivery for righteous people. The second coming is judgment for the wicked. The the rapture is a resurrection to life. There's no mention of resurrection in this passage, only death for the wicked. He comes to rescue believers at the rapture of the church from the wrath that is to come. Uh, Romans 5, 9, 1 Thessalonians 1, 10, Revelation 3, 10, coming to take us out from this world before the wrath comes. Here he's coming to rule. He's coming to judge and wage war. Very different from the rapture passages. The rapture is an imminent event. It can happen at any time. We are to be prepared for it to happen at any moment. Uh, This second coming very much preceded by signs. That's the entire book. The point of the book of Revelation is to reveal the signs, the things that will take place before he comes again. The rapture is a comfort to us. This is a warning to us and the world that Christ is coming again. The rapture is a mysterious, motivating, imminent event wherein believers in the church will be resurrected or changed instantaneously, caught up to meet Christ in the air and taken back to heaven. Again, not what is described in Revelation 19 at all. What is described in Revelation 19? Uh, the second coming of Christ is what is described in something, a facet of that is that, there, that Jesus, while he will be the one executing judgment, he will not be completely alone when he does this. We see this in our passage this morning. There will be some spectators who come along with him There is a sword and there is a striking that takes place Uh, when Christ comes again. We begin with the spectators. Notice Revelation 19 and verse 14. It says, "And And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. Notice the armies in heaven. Somehow my uh, animations didn't get right. We'll press on anyway. (laughs) 
Revelation 19, 14. And the armies which are in heaven. Notice it's very clear in our English as well as in the Greek that this is a, that this is a plural word, the armies which are in heaven. So that could mean a couple of different things. There are mul- myriads and myriads of people or are there multiple groups? Are there two different groups that are combined into one? I would kind of lean towards the latter option myself. I don't think this is something that needs to uh, be the foundation for a new church or anything like that, but the Scriptures tell us pretty clearly that angels are going to return with Christ when He comes again to the earth. Joel 3.9 says, Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare a war. Rouse the mighty men. Let all the soldiers draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a mighty man. Verse 11, hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down, O Lord, your mighty ones. Let the nations be aroused and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Bring down, O Lord, your mighty ones. That's a description of angels coming with the Lord again when he comes. Notice Jesus' words in the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24 29 says, but immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the son of man will appear in the sky and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the son of man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. Angels will be present when Christ comes again. Uh, 2 Thessalonians 1.6, For after all, it was only just for uh, God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted, and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Very clear description of angels coming again with Christ when he comes to the earth. There's also another group of people who will be, or a group of people, not angels, who are very very clearly described to be with Christ when he comes again. And notice that this is not only in the New Testament. There's an Old Testament uh, revelation of this as well. Zechariah 14.1 says, Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil will be taken from you, will be divided among you, for I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. That's what we've been learning about happening at the end of the tribulation period. All the nations of the world coming together against Israel, against God, we've seen. And the city will be captured, the houses plundered, the women ravished, and half the city exiled, but the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. Then... 
The Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when He fights on a day of battle. And that day His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley so that half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. You will flee uh, by the valley of, the, of my mountains for the valley of the mountains will reach to Azel. Yes, you will flee just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. Believers will be with Christ when he comes again. Revelation 17, 14, passage that we've already studied about the, uh, the end of the tribulation period when this uh, great war is kicked off. These will wage war against the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them because He is Lord of lords and King of kings. And those who are with Him are the called and chosen and faithful. And we spent some good amount of time uh, studying that passage, Revelation seventeen fourteen, describing that believers, believers are the ones who are the called. They received a call. They answered the call, and therefore they are choice, would be a better word there than chosen. As we spent some time uh, studying, we saw that's an adjective there, that uh, word that's translated as chosen. Better choice. We are God's choice ones uh, and faithful. God is no respecter of persons. He, he demands that we have faith in Him. Without faith, we cannot please Him. And so this is a description of believers returning with Christ in Revelation 17, 14. So these armies in heaven, these ones who are uh, clothed in fine linen, these, I believe, is a description of believers coming with Him, but there are also going to be angels with the Lord when He comes again. These are clothed in fine linen, the ones being described here. This is probably uh, more technically to say that, that this is a description of the believers who are coming again with Christ. But keep in mind that there are also going to be angels with him when he comes again. But according to the description that we have here, it's, this is more directed towards the believers as they are uh, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. We have seen this uh, several times throughout the book of Revelation, but it is a description of purity that these people have. 1 John 3, 1 says, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God, and such we are. A lot of times we can just kind of breeze over these kinds of passages and not consider not consider the words uh, and we can just sort of flippantly think oh our, our, yeah I'm a child of God isn't that isn't that great uh, wow stop and consider that for a second as a believer you are one who is named as a child of the God of the universe he is the one who has saved us in this incredible love that he has bestowed upon us but for this reason, since we are the children of God, for this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know Him. 
Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. uh, Unfortunately, pastors feel like they need to, in a lot of cases, motivate people to live the Christian life by threatening them with uh, loss of salvation or the idea that, oh, you were never really saved if you're not living in a, in a pure way or, uh, you know, you, you're, the faith that you do profess is not genuine and you're on your way to hell. That is, that is very unfortunate. That is an incorrect uh, way to motivate believers to live for the Lord, uh, primarily because it's contrary to the Scriptures. We know that at the, at the instant that we trust in Christ, we pass from life, from death, into life. John 5.24, the book of Gospel of John. The other book that this same John wrote emphasizes salvation through faith in Christ. Uh, the single condition, believing in Christ. When we believe in Him, trust in what He did for us on the cross rather than our own works, uh, rather than thinking there is no punishment for sin, rather than thinking that there is no God, whatever we are trusting in, our religion, there is an innumerable number of things that we could trust in. Instead, We change our minds to trusting in Christ. At the moment that happens, we pass from death into life and we receive eternal life. And then we are to progress in the Christian life, being motivated, as it says here in 1 John, by the fact that Christ is coming again to this earth. 1 John 3.3 Everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. And that's exactly what is described here in Revelation 19, 14, in the clothing of these armies which are in heaven, fine, they're clothed with fine linen that is white and clean. And we've seen throughout Revelation, again, that these are representative, these white, this white fine linen clothing is representative of good works over and over throughout Revelation, this idea is driven home to us. Revelation 3, 4, speaking of the messages to the churches, message to Sardis, uh, Revelation 3, 4, the Lord says, but you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments and they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. He's, uh, the Lord pointing out that there are some people in Sardis who are living for the Lord today. And in the future, they're going to have clothing that is white and clean, made of fine linen, given to them for uh, their clothing when they return with the Lord. Revelation 7, 9, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count from every nation, and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. That's a description of people who had died during the uh, sealed judgments, if you'll remember. Revelation 6 described the sealed judgments, that first group of judgments that will take place during the tribulation 
period, one of them. The fifth seal was great martyrdom that will take place during the tribulation period. These, picture, these people are pictured in Revelation 7 as being in heaven, clothed in uh, white robes, palm branches in their hands, worshiping God himself there in heaven. Also, Revelation 19.7, uh, we spent time studying that passage as well. Uh, Revelation 19, 7 and 8, Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. And here it comes. If there was any discussion about what the fine linen is, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And this clothing that these individuals will have on, we will have on when we come again with the Lord, is required for entry into the kingdom. Jesus himself described that in a parable. Revelation, or uh, sorry, Matthew 22, parable of the, of the Great Supper, if you'll remember that, uh, at the conclusion of that parable, Matthew twenty-two eleven. The uh, supper has come, the guests are there, but when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. <laughs> then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot, throw him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So there, in parables, there's typically one point that is being expressed. We don't want to take the parable and divide it up into all these things and say, oh, see, there's going to be uh, unbelievers that are going to make their way into the kingdom, and then Jesus is going to kind of uh, say, oh, how did this guy get by me? I can't believe it. He snuck his way in, and oh, now we've got to get rid of him. Uh, and on the other hand, we don't want to say, oh, well, every person who originally enters into the kingdom is a believer, and so now God, Christ, is going to go around and he's going to inspect everybody, and if your life didn't match up, you're going to get cast into outer darkness for a thousand years and uh, experience weeping and gnashing of teeth during the kingdom period. That's equally is dangerous. The point is, the point of the parable is that you have to have the clothing that God gives to you in order to be in the kingdom period. And the clothing here is representative of the transferred righteousness of Christ to us. At the moment that we trust in Christ, one of the things that happens is that he transfers Christ's righteousness to us. We don't earn it through uh, creating a, or uh, performing a certain set of good works or giving enough money to a church or belonging to the right dom denomination, these kinds of things. No, it is given expressly on the condition of faith. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 We trust in Christ. He transfers his righteousness to us it is represented in this clothing that is white and clean, made of fine linen. And that's our ticket into the kingdom. 
only the transferred righteousness of Christ earns us a place in this kingdom. He did all the work. We trust in what he did on our behalf. He gives us the blessing of the clothing that will be required to enter. And that's very much wrapped up in uh, Jewish uh, procedure, if you will, in a wedding. That's the way that they handled it, at least then, that the, the kind of the one who's hosting the party hands out clothing to the guests, and they have to have that clothing to come into the dinner party. Uh, same will be in the kingdom here. Uh, and notice that they, verse 14, ends with this. They were following him on white horses. There's no description of any weapons. You know, I, I, I kind of like guns and <laughs> that sort of thing. True confessions, uh, if you will. Um, and it seems like it would be, ah, we'll be riding on horses with our M4s and we'll just be taking down the bad guys. That's not the way, <laughs> that's not at all the way it's going to work. There is no description of any weapons. There's no description of any kind of body armor or anything like that. I guess our body armor is this clothing made of fine linen that the Lord is going to give us. And he is the one who is, as we're going to see shortly, he is the one who is doing the waging of the warfare. We are simply following behind in his power. Isn't that interesting? That is a very uh, perfect picture of the Christian life. Uh, make no mistake, this is a literal event that is one day literally going to happen that Christ will return to the earth and we will be with him uh, apparently, uh, not even apparently, riding on white horses with him. But, but he is the one who is doing it. He is the one who is waging the warfare, doing the conquering. We are just being swept along in the power of the Lord. And that's very much like what the Christian life is like. Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. See, unfortunately for us, at this point in time, we do not have a resurrected body. We do not have a glorified body that won't sin. We still have a sin nature. And so we have to walk by faith in the one who is accomplishing the things in our lives that he wants to accomplish. So at this point in time, there is a, there is a, 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 a cooperation that must take place between us and the Holy Spirit uh, who lives within us. We have to cooperate with him. He doesn't cooperate with us. <laughs> we cooperate with him. And as we do that, then we are living for the Lord, walking by means of faith, walking by means of the Spirit, uh, studying His Word, allowing it to, to conform our minds to, to Him rather than to this world, confessing sins to Him, keeping short accounts, communicating with Him through prayer. This, uh, these are the means of the Spirit. This is how we are to uh, order our lives as we live for him, going in his power just the same way that we will in the future 
go with him when he comes again to this earth to be the one. He is the one who is judging. He is the one who is waging war. And in fact, he's waging a war with a a sword that comes from his mouth. Revelation 19.15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. We don't have to uh, have a PhD in poetry to understand what is is being described here. Uh, As we look at this sword that is coming from his mouth, that is obviously representative of his spoken word. That Christ isn't going to be reliant upon F-35s and aircraft carriers and uh, whatever, Abrams tanks and uh, billions of dollars from the U.S. Congress in order to wage this war against the enemies of God. He's going to do it with his own spoken word. And his uh, spoken word is very powerful. Christ's word is powerful. It's coming from his mouth. In fact, he is the one who created all things that we see and all things that we don't see with his spoken word. Genesis 1.3, Then God said, Let there be light. And there was light. That, that's powerful. That is uh, being able to speak things into existence. Light, for example. What? <laughs> what is light? How in the world do you create light? God did with his spoken word. He created everything that we see and everything that we can't see with the power of his voice, with the power of his word. Exodus chapter 20, the giving of the law, as I've mentioned before, if you were there with your iPhone and your voice recorder app, you could have held that out at Exodus 20 when God was on Mount Sinai and you would have been able to record his voice. You could have it on your iPhone. He was literally speaking from the mountain to the people. And the people didn't like it all that much. People like to uh, claim, oh, I heard God talk to me. He told me to go to the gas station and give $5 to this guy. Uh, Hearing from God all the time, hearing God's literal voice. People get rather frightened when they hear God's voice in the Bible, like the Israelites at Mount Sinai. Exodus 20, 19, after receiving the law, God literally spoke the Ten Commandments to them. Then they said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but let not God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid for God has come in order to test you and in order that the fear of him may remain with you so that you may not sin. They were so terrified of the the very voice of God, the power that emanated just from his words that they didn't want to hear it anymore. They were scared for their lives, literally. But, he, but Moses reassures them that they don't need to be in fear. He's doing this to get your attention to know that he is the God of the universe and we ought to be afraid of him. We ought to, uh, and that ought to not cause us to run away, but rather to not sin. That's the whole point of the law and God 
revealing it to them through his spoken word. It is very powerful. And incidentally, Jesus Christ is the one who is doing this. I personally believe he's the one speaking. He is the, he is the embodiment of God, if you will. And uh, he takes the name of God. Yahweh is the name. I am, I am in the Greek is the same as it is in the Hebrew. Jesus Christ takes that uh, name of God. And uh, he was present when it was created. In fact, he was the one who was actually executing it. Also at Gog and Magog, his word is going to be very powerful. That's a a war that will take place in the future, Ezekiel 38. We uh, saw a news article about that this morning. Uh, Ezekiel 38, 21, God says, I will call for a sword against him on all my mountains, declares the Lord. Every man's sword will be against his brother. With pestilence and with blood, I will enter into judgment with them, and I will rain on them and on the troops and on the, and on the many peoples who are with him a torrential rain with hailstones, fire, and brimstone. I will magnify myself, sanctify myself, and make myself known in the sight of many nations, and they will know that I am the Lord. He is going to call, and these things are going to happen to the armies that will invade Israel one day in the future. Christ's word is very, very powerful. And this is the method that he will use to strike down the nations, his very spoken word. And his word, the Bible, is also very powerful. After all, Christ is the word who became flesh. And his word is the truth, all verses that we can take from the Gospel of John and put together and get a picture of who Jesus is and what the Bible is. The Bible is powerful enough to find us out. If we will just pay any modicum of attention to it, it will reveal things to us that we may not want to know, but we ought to know. Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Uh, You remember the description of Christ coming again. His eyes are a flame of fire. He has this sword that is coming out of his mouth to destroy his enemies. This is the same one that we have to do with. We kind of, uh, we deny that to our own detriment. Again, one of several problems that there is in the modern church. Not really recognizing who we are dealing with in the person of Jesus Christ. It's the same one that the Israelites didn't want to hear his literal voice because it's so scary. It's the same one who created everything out of nothing with his spoken word. The same one whose word is able to divide soul and spirit. How does that happen? I'm not sure. (laughs) In the same way, I'm not sure even what light is, let alone how to create it. Can divide soul and spirit. Why? Because he can judge our thoughts and our intentions. We can have uh, the greatest 
set of good works known to man. But if our intentions are wrong, God knows. And of course, there will be no reward for that. Because one day we will all stand in judgment before Him and His very Word is able to find us out. And of course, His Word is powerful enough to sanctify sinful people like you and like me. That's pretty powerful. Uh, Jesus said, John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. That means we can be sanctified. We can be made holy through God's word if we are just willing to apply it to our lives, understanding what it is, the word of God, who he is, Jesus Christ, the word who became flesh, and who we are in light of these truths, and just submit ourselves to uh, his word and the truth that we find there. Not only is his word powerful enough to slay all the enemies uh, uh, in this world when he comes again, which he will do, it's also powerful enough to change us as believers if, we're, if we will just submit to it in our lives. Next, notice the striking that takes place. Again, verse 15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. He will strike down the nations. That This is the point that he is, uh, this is the whole point. This is why he is coming again to carry this out. He is coming to judge and wage war, as it says there in uh, Revelation 19 and 11. Back in Isaiah chapter 11, from our scripture reading this morning, we get the same idea. That's why he's coming. This uh, passage caused a lot of problems for the Jewish people as they uh, they like this part, the, the judging and waging war and eradicating the enemies of Israel and the enemies of God. They loved that part uh, when Christ came to the earth. That's what they were looking for. Someone to deliver them from their circumstances of their life, the Roman oppression. They see Rome uh, ruling over Israel. That's not the way it will be when the Messiah comes. The Messiah is going to get rid of these Romans and all of their hatred and their bad rules and their mistreatment of us and so on and so forth. So that's what we're looking for. I'm looking, uh, the Jewish people would have said in large part, uh, the Jewish authorities anyway, that's what we want. We want a military commander who's going to come again and slay all these Romans and put us in charge, is essentially what they were looking for. They were not looking for someone to solve the problem in their hearts, which is the first part of uh, Isaiah 11, of course. When the Lord comes, he will have, verse 2, the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, uh, wisdom, understanding, counsel, strength, knowledge, fear of the Lord. He will delight in the fear of the Lord uh, and these kinds of things. And then verse 4, but with righteousness, he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. Uh, he kind of did those things in his first coming. His second coming, 
Second half of the verse, he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Also righteousness will be the belt about his loins and faithfulness, the belt about his waist. uh, waist. And then the kingdom will be implemented, all those various things that we talked about. He is coming to wage war when he comes again. Uh, Entire book of Zephaniah describes Christ coming again and waging war against the nations of the world. And this is after the tribulation period that he comes again uh, to do this. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verses 1 through 10. We won't spend all uh, a whole lot of time. We don't have a whole lot of time to do it, so we won't uh, do it. But at any rate, very clearly lays out the fact uh, to the Thessalonian people, no, we're not living in the tribulation period. The Antichrist hasn't come. He hasn't done all of these signs and wonders. None of that is happening. And oh, by the way, Christ is, is coming again to eradicate all of these uh, institutions from the earth. And so we don't have to, to be concerned with that at this point in time in which we are living. Christ will come again after the tribulation period. And he's coming to rule the nations. Very interesting word there that is used in verse 15. He will rule, he's come, he may strike down the nations with the sharp sword from his mouth and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And we, uh, I, I guess I should just speak for myself. When I see that term rule and the rod of iron, uh, yeah, all those bad guys are going to get it in the end. And while that is true, there's also another meaning to this word that is translated as rule uh, from the Greek. The Greek term is poimeno, is the Greek term. And it also is used for shepherding. It, it, and it is a word that is applied to Christ a lot of times uh, in his first uh, coming, that he is a shepherd, he's the great shepherd, and these kinds of things. And he's also coming to rule. And so within this term, uh, there are a couple of different aspects to it, clearly. And so, yes, Christ is coming to rule with a rod of iron, but he's also coming to shepherd people. He's coming to lead them into righteousness, lead them in a, in a, in a place that is becoming more and more like life is supposed to be on the earth. I think that that will ultimately take place in the, in the eternal state. The kingdom period is kind of a transitory place. Uh, But it's not much unlike the world in which we live in that we we need to be ruled from time to time and we also need to be shepherded from time to time. And Peter uses this same term to exhort uh, leaders in the church. 1 Peter 5, 1. He's someone who's very familiar with this term as well as this is the term that Jesus used to tell to uh, exhort him in the end of the Gospel of John, shepherd my people, he used the same term. 
and he did not mean to beat them over the head with a, with a rod of iron. Instead, he wanted him to shepherd them. Peter says, Therefore I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd, poimeno, the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but providing to be, but proving to be examples to the flock. So a lot of times when I uh, prepare messages, it's more about me than it is about you. And this is another one of those. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God. Uh, not yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. This is the charge that, that Christ gave to Peter, and Peter is now transferring on down to us that as leaders in the church, we are to be examples to the flock. That's why there are these lists of uh, extensive lists. We just spent some time electing elders here. Uh, extensive list of the qualifications of an elder because they are to be examples to the flock in godliness and our behavior. And we are also given the charge to lead, shepherd, uh, rule over the church body, guide them in the correct into the correct places, just like a shepherd does. A shepherd doesn't lead the sheep into a barren place. He leads the sheep to where they can be fed if he's being a good shepherd at any rate. That is the, the role of the pastor and will be the role of God, Christ, in the future kingdom. He, he is literally will lead us into righteousness. Part of that is correcting uh, sin it's going to quickly be dealt with as we will see. Paul also uses this uh, same term, poimeno, in his goodbye to the elders of the church of Ephesus in Acts chapter 20. Verse 28, another passage that very much uh, speaks to me. Paul says, Acts 20 and verse 28, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Verse 29, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Shepherd the flock. Uh, guide them uh, as Christ is going to do when he comes again. Uh, and this idea of the rod of iron sin is going to be dealt with very quickly. Uh, that... Uh, an indication that it's not going to be all perfectly without sin when Christ establishes the kingdom. He's still going to be dealing with sin, which is a great model for us in the church 
today sin needs to be dealt with or else it will it will grow and become an issue within the church that's why we have to deal with it when it happens and he's also going to tread the wine press of God's wrath he does this alone just as it was described in Isaiah 63 3 and as a wonderful indication this entire passage is a wonderful indication that the kingdom uh, is all of God's doing uh, what kind of a kingdom would we create if we were here to create the kingdom oh, it's going to be a disaster uh, the Antichrist is going to create a kingdom, by the way, and it is going to be the most ungodly uh, corporation or institution that there has ever been, and it will be, that is the ultimate of man's efforts to create a kingdom. No, the kingdom that is of Christ is all of him. It is all of his making, his doing. He will literally come and wage war against his enemies on this earth and establish his kingdom very much the same way that uh, salvation is all of God. Just because he charges us with the duty of believing in what he has done does not mean that we are in some way accomplishing our own salvation. We are simply trusting in the salvation that, that God has provided through the shed blood of Christ. And when we do that, we will have, we do have an inheritance in this kingdom that is to come. And so there we have the armies of heaven, the spectators. Uh, here a description of us in our white and clean fine linen representative of the good works and the transferred righteousness that God gives to us. Angels will be there with him as well. He is going to accomplish this uh, with the word of his mouth, the very powerful word that is able to create this world, destroy this world, uh, give us life eternal, and to sanctify us, to live for him. That's how powerful this word is. And with it, he is going to strike down the nations of the world. Let's go to him in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. I thank you for the truth of salvation through faith alone in Christ alone. I thank you for the promise that you are coming again for us one day to catch us up to be with you uh, forever. That You will take us back in glorified bodies to heaven to be with you. And then according to the book of Revelation 19, we will return again with you to this earth and be literal witnesses of what you are going to accomplish in this world. And I pray, Lord, that that truth would motivate us to live for you today, to be holy people uh, who are desirous of accomplishing your will in our lives and uh, in the world around us. I just pray that your spirit would empower us in that, would encourage us in that, and that we would uh, all be fully submitted to you and to your word. I just pray for your protection over us as we go from this place and in this week to come. Help us to be lights in this dark world and we just thank you again for the salvation that we have in Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.